22, beginning at verse 54, Luke 22, verse 54. Having arrested him, that is Jesus, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest. But Peter was following at a distance. After they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard and had sat down together, Peter was sitting among them. And a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the firelight and looking intently at him, said, This man was with him too. But he denied it, saying, Woman, I do not know him. A little later, another saw him and said, You are one of them too. Peter said, Man, I am not. After about an hour had passed, another man began to insist, saying, Certainly, this man also was with him, for he is a Galilean, too. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. Immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. The Lord turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the word of the Lord, how he had told him before a rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And he went out and wept bitterly. Now, the men who were holding Jesus in custody were mocking him and beating him. And they blindfolded him. And we're asking him, saying, prophesy, who is it, the one who hit you? And they were saying many other things against him, blaspheming. When it was day, the council of elders of the people assembled, both chief priests and scribes. And they led him away to their council chamber, saying, if you are the Christ, Tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. And if I ask a question of you, you will not answer. But from now on, the son of man will be seated at the right hand of the power of God. And they all said, are you the son of God then? And he said to them, Yes, I am. And then they said, what further need do we have of testimony? For we have heard it ourselves from his own mouth. Amen. Now, last week, congregation, you'll remember that we spoke of how Jesus Christ was entering more deeply into his loneliness. By the end of last week, we saw Jesus was essentially alone in prayer. His inner three disciples, Peter, James and John, having fallen asleep. 
while he is agonizingly pleading with the father, if there be any other way to secure the redemption of God's people, let this cup pass. But he then would say three times over, not my will, but thine be done. And Luke tells us, as we went out from last week, that the power of darkness had been given into the hands of the enemies of Christ. And they came with a mob and Judas betraying our Savior with a kiss or came and arrested him. And now we come to the further deprivation of Christ as he is plunged more deeply into isolation, desolation, all the way climaxing to the cross. I want you to see that Luke here, as well as the other gospel writers, are are showing us almost the descent of Christ deeper and deeper into his humiliation as he goes. And so the three points for this morning are these. Number one, verse 54 to 62, we will see that Jesus denied. Jesus denied. That is, boys and girls, Peter is going to deny our Savior three times. Jesus denied, verse 54 to 62. Then we're going to take a step downward. From verse 63 to 65, and we will see Jesus abused. And then thirdly, in verses 66 to 71, we will see Jesus tried and blasphemed. And so with each step, we're going down till we get to the nadir of the cross. And then we're going to see even while Jesus is on the cross that that is not ultimately the nadir, but then... Christ on the cross at noon with the wrath of God then descending. Remember the first three hours, Jesus is physically suffering on that cross. But then at noon, you'll remember the wrath and the judgment of God comes down on Christ and Christ begins to suffer the eternal punishment of hell for us on that cross. And so we are going down, down, down with Jesus into his humiliation for us. And it will be a wonderful source of meditation for us, I think, as we come to the Lord's table. Let's take these three points here. First of all, let's talk about the denial of Jesus. Jesus denied. Again, if you look at verse 54, Luke says, having arrested him, Jesus, they led him away and brought him to the house of the high priest. But Peter was following at a distance. So here they have arrested the innocent Jesus Christ. The sinless Jesus Christ, the lamb who is without any sin, and they are treating him as a criminal. And they bring him to the house of the high priest. Now, Peter, we are told, is in proximity. We can imagine that he is probably following maybe in the dark at a distance, keeping himself safe as not to be detected by the arresting party. Remember that we're told by other gospel writers that Peter has already Lopped off Malchus's ear, the slave of the high priest. So Peter has already made himself fairly visible at the moment of the arrest. And so as we consider, you know, the fact that Peter is going to deny the Lord under tremendous pressure. Let's also remember, though, that Peter is still at this point hanging in there. Where are the others? Now, we know John from another gospel. We know that John is there and John seems to have some kind of inside ticket. To be able to get into the courtyard. And he's the one that eventually will get Peter in the courtyard. Luke doesn't give us those details 
in, in his account. But we, we should acknowledge here some credit. Many of the disciples are, are AWOL. But, but Peter does seem to be at least following at a distance. Uh, <clears throat> so Peter does have uh, that boldness in, in some regard. But Peter has placed himself in a place where Jesus had warned him he was going to be sifted by Satan. A place of testing and, and temptation and trial and he's going to fail. And so in verse 56 and 57, we see that a, a young servant girl seeing him as he sits by the firelight, looking intently at him, studying him, saying he kind of looked familiar. Who is this guy looking at him, looking at him, watching him? And then she does realize, wait a minute. This man was with him. Now, we don't know exactly how this slave girl recognized Peter. Did she recognize him from times when they were in Jerusalem earlier? Was she part of the arresting party as a, a servant, a helper to those men that were going to make the arrest? We, we don't know, but somehow she's put it together that she has seen this man and she identifies Peter publicly there. And Peter denies it. Now, Peter has lied, boys and girls. We need to feel the weight of that. He lied, but he did lie under pressure. Peter pulled back from acknowledging Jesus as his friend and as his savior. Now, I want us to feel by way of application the weight of this temptation and the denial of Peter, the denial of Christ by Peter. And the reason for that is I have a suspicion. And in many ways, we have all denied the Lord under lesser circumstances. Maybe in certain secular settings, we too have shrunk back from identifying too closely with the Lord Jesus Christ for fear of some potential negative reaction on the part of others. And I think if we are to look at Peter here, we need to do so without becoming judgmental. That is, we need to take the log out of our own eye and then take the speck out of Peter's. Is it not possible this morning that we have been in situations where there was far less pressure, far less consequence to fear other than maybe a raised eyebrow? Maybe a haughty smirk, maybe a sideways glance from people who are not particularly religious looking at others. And that we have not at times been ashamed of the humiliation of Jesus Christ. Maybe we feared we'd lose some credibility that we had with them in the workplace. Maybe we didn't want to identify too closely with Jesus because it would mean the loss of a sale or a client. Maybe we wanted too much to be respected by the academic community. Maybe we were afraid that a social club, a fraternity, a sorority, a, a businessmen's association would somehow deny us access if we identified too openly and publicly with Jesus. Maybe we feared that we would rise no higher in our company if we acknowledged Jesus openly. Maybe we just wanted that potential in-law to like us and we didn't want her frown. And so we downplayed our commitment to Christ 
We didn't want to say with the Apostle Paul to live as Christ and to die as gain. My whole life is Jesus. He's the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end of my being. So let's not be too quick to condemn Peter in our heart. While at the same time saying with Peter, oh, Lord, I'll never deny you. I'll never forsake you. I'm prepared to go to death for you, Jesus. Even though in situations with far less consequence, we have shown ourselves to be less than faithful. Woman. I do not know him. Denial number one. Verse 58. A little later, another saw him and said, you are one of them, too. But Peter said, man, I am not. Now, this time, Luke tells us that a little bit of time has gone from the first denial to this second temptation. And isn't it interesting as Peter is going to fail three times. You remember many moons ago when we were at the beginning of Luke and we saw Luke. Uh, Tell us that Jesus was faithful three times when the devil came and tempted him. And here now we're seeing why we should rejoice that Jesus was victorious over Satan in those three temptations because we need a savior. Here's a man who's going to fail three times. So here's a man and he comes up to Peter and he insists that Peter is, quote, one of them, too, meaning one of the disciples, one of the Galileans. And here again, Peter denies that he is one of those followers of Jesus. Peter fears arrest. And he's hoping here that a quick lie can help him escape detection. He has not repented of his first lie, has he? His conscience should have troubled him. His conscience should have smote him. And it probably did. And Peter suppressed That throbbing conscience that you lied and he should have repented and he should have corrected the matter. But he doesn't do that, does he? Peter decides in a time of temptation to double down on the lie. Now, you have to ask yourself, is Peter's conscience troubling him all the more at this point? Is he now afraid of also having to admit not only is he a follower of the sinless Jesus But he has practiced hypocritically the sin of lying. How many times does that occur to us as Christians? We sin and then we are afraid to admit the sin because we are known to be followers of Jesus. And it doesn't lead to better things. Better to eat crow and admit you've sinned than to go on and double down on the sin. He now, Peter, has sinned twice. He's lied twice. Peter must confess his lie, but he does not do it. And he's hoping that he can escape detection from those around the fire by continuing under this lie. But God knows that Peter has lied twice. And the God of all truth, we know from other scriptures, cannot be pleased with Peter's disacknowledgement of, of the son. God permitted the first temptation and Peter failed. God gave Peter a second opportunity To repent and Peter refuses to repent and speak the truth. This is the man who in Matthew 16, remember, 
was honored by Jesus because he spoke the truth before the disciples. When Jesus said, who do men say that I am? And some said, well, some say you're John the Baptist. Others say you're Elijah. Some say you're one of the prophets. But who do you say that I am? And Peter says, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood did not reveal that to you. But my father who is in heaven, the spirit revealed that to you. And here now is Peter having once performed wondrously in confessing Jesus before Jesus and before the disciples. Now he is denying that very Jesus under this pressure. And I think there's an application for us there, isn't there? It's one thing to profess Jesus here in the church in front of other disciples and in front of the elders, isn't it? Will you publicly deny what you have confessed in this building? Out there in the world? Will you publicly deny your communicant membership vows? Out in the world? What are you going to do? And don't, I don't want you to think this is just complete fiction. But what are you going to do if the civil magistrates in this country implement a policy of cleansing our culture of evangelicals? What, what are you going to do if, if, the, if the culture we live on turns against us? Right now we still have our civil liberties. But what are we going to do if a, if a new policy, a new solution? We need to get rid of these hateful people who refuse to recognize the legitimacy of same sex marriages, they say. And they campaign on that. And they get elected. And they get a majority in Congress. And they start coming for us. Will you deny Jesus? When people have the power to do you harm, what are you going to do when people sue you? They have the power to run up your legal bills. They can make you spend every last cent that you've saved up for retirement. By putting you in the courts. And tying you up with lawsuits. And all you wanted to do was bake cakes. And it only took one homosexual couple. And now you find yourself not only in a world of legal trouble, but now social scorn from many quarters. The press is against you. Maybe you're going to find the imposition of fines or even jail time. Are you going to say, I don't know these people? Are you going to deny Jesus when the federal government threatens to remove your tax exempt status as a church? Because you're associated with a denomination that says a man with a man in marriage is a sin. It's an abomination. That if one man lies down with another man, it is an abomination. Not just a sin. It's a sin that is heightened as, as God singles it out as an abomination. Peter had time to realize his sin. Look at verse 59. I want you to feel this isn't like it happened all within the space of a couple minutes. 
That's how I, I think I'm tempted to think about this. But notice verse 59, Luke says, after about an hour had passed, between the second and the third temptation, after about an hour had passed, another man began to insist, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he is a Galilean too. Peter had time to think about his sin, didn't he? He had the time to think about his failure, to turn from it, to repent of it, to ask for forgiveness. Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, a rooster crowed. And he realizes he's failed. Jesus looks at Peter. Peter sees Jesus looking at him. He hears the crowing of the rooster in his ears. He sees Jesus looking at him and he realizes he's failed the Lord. And he goes out into the night weeping. So we have Jesus denied. Jesus now has been denied by his one of his closest friends. Think about that. What if some of your closest Christian friends denied you because you were on trial? And it friends, it could happen. Nothing will test your Christian friendships. Like having to go to jail for the sake of Christ. And who's really your friend? Who's will who is really willing to be associated with you when you're in the fire? Jesus has been denied and now he's about to be abused. Secondly, Jesus is to be abused in verse 63 and following. The abuse takes three forms. Number one, he is mocked, mocking. Number two, physical beating. And number three, Jesus is blasphemed. The physical torments begin. Jesus is blindfolded, we are told, and he receives blow after blow. You can imagine. Luke isn't specific, but we can imagine they were blows to the head, blows to the face, blows to the torso, blows to the abdomen, abdomen, abdomen. They mock him. In addition, if you're really a prophet, tell us who hit you. You have to understand, boys and girls, the reason they blindfold him is so that Jesus can't see. And so while they're beating him, they're also mocking him. So you you see the, the, the level of depravity that's going on here. They're beating the son of God and mocking him. They're making a sport of it. This is actually kind of fun for these men. They're not just beating him, but they're, you know, uh, they're beating him with pleasure. They're getting a kick out of it. And as they hit him, they're saying, hey, come on, man, tell us who hit you. Come on, you're a prophet. Come on, you hit him. Boom, another guy hits him. Who hit you? Which one of us did it? And then in addition to that. They're blaspheming God and and Christ. They're speaking. Blasphemy is irreverence, speaking irreverently and piously against God and his holiness. And so they're violating the third commandment. They're essentially taking the name of God in vain. And I think we also should remember, as we prayed in the pastoral prayer, there are a lot of believers who are having to identify with Jesus 
in the same manner. You and I probably I don't know that any of us here have ever had to deny ever had to identify rather with Jesus in this kind of humiliation. Now, our brother Zacharias Valdiasus, who visited us last October, has he has been put in in a uh, trailer in, in a windowless trailer and been beaten uh, while he was. Uh, a citizen of Eritrea by government officials. And there are many fellow Christians who suffer this kind of humiliation for the sake of their identity with Jesus. And we need to examine ourselves this morning, especially as we come to the Lord's table and we're about to commune with the Lord and we're about to take of his body and drink of his blood in the bread and in the wine. We should examine ourselves And ask ourselves, am I ready to identify with Jesus no matter what? That's what you're doing at this table here in just a moment. Is you are saying, I and Christ are one. Christ is in me and I am in him as I eat this bread and I drink of this wine and it becomes a part of me. So Christ dwells in me and I in him. Not in a corporal and carnal manner, but by faith. But we need to ask ourselves, are we willing to be identified with this Savior who is humiliated for us? Even to the point of mockings and beatings and the blaspheming of our precious Savior's name in our ears. One of the things that sometimes torturers do is they say the most vile things about Jesus. As they beat. His followers. You know, again, I, you know, you've heard me say this before. I don't want to be apocalyptic, but I don't want us to be naive. I was watching a documentary on Amazon Prime this week. uh, Where a notable Christian speaker went to a state university to speak on nothing other than uh, the Bible's view on sexual ethics. That was his topic. And the abuse that this man endured uh, should be a a shame to that university. Uh, the, the, The derision that was heaped upon him, the interruptions, the shouting, the protesting, the mocking. Uh, The vile things that were being said. This is this is America's intellectual future. This is how America's intellectual future is behaving. Wait till these people get power, friends. Wait till these people get elected to Congress. He, He was simply speaking on that sexual relationship should be between a husband and a wife. And and they were calling him a sexist and a a homophobe and a bigot and all this language and derision being heaped upon him, interrupting him in the middle of his lecture. He was seeking to bring a, you know, kind of a highbrow lecture. Um, It it shows the vacuousness of, of a lot of our university, the emptiness there, not willing to listen to. Any form of of reason. It's all emotion. It's all histrionics. 
It's all just got to condemn you. Can't listen to this. I need my safe space. There, there is a hostility in our culture that is growing to those who hold to Christian ethics. You know, formally, they claim they simply wanted liberty to do what they wanted to do between consenting adults. But that's not enough now. Now they want to force you to honor their deviancy. Or they're going to shut you down. Or they're going to kick you off campus. You no longer have the right to university buildings because you will not allow officers in your group to hold to these sexual ethics. They'll shout you down at speaking engagements. We need to be willing to identify with Jesus. And we need to be willing to identify with those that Jesus raises up in this country and speaks plainly and boldly and lovingly to these issues. And not distance ourselves from these people. That man should have had more supporters in the room. That man should have had more Christians. There were Christians there. You could tell they were kind of up near the front and they weren't carrying on like the rest of the room. Are you willing to be identified with the sufferings of Jesus, the mockings of Jesus, the beatings of Jesus, the blasphemy against the Lord Jesus Christ? You know, the Apostle Paul spoke of his union with Christ in these terms, didn't he? He said that that he participated in his union and fellowship with Christ in the humiliation and the exaltation. There are some Christians who just want to identify with Christ in the exaltation. Give me the good stuff. But they don't want to participate with the bad stuff. They want to they want they think union with Christ means that heaven is now. No, my friend. Heaven has been inaugurated by the outpouring of the spirit. But in this world, we are still in opposition to the flesh and the world and the devil. And there are terrible things taking place in that warfare between the two camps. We are not yet in the world of glory. All of Christ's enemies are not yet under his feet. And we must be willing to publicly identify with our Savior in that battle. And and so I want to encourage you as you see fellow Christians on the front line. Engaging in that battle. That you not distance yourself from that brother or that sister. That's one of the worst things to see. Is to see the cowards in the church run. From the simple, humble Christian. Who's just standing up for the truth. You know, most of the time, these people aren't going out of their way to do it. Most of these occasions where we read about it in our newspaper, it's not like they were going around town with a a red cape trying to find a bull. They're just going about their Christian business and life. And the culture turns against them. We need to identify with the suffering People of God. 
One last point, and we come to the table here. Jesus tried. Jesus tried. Verse 66. When it was day, the council of elders of the people assembled both chief priests and scribes, and they led him away to their council chamber. Verse 67. If you are the Christ, tell us. But he said to them, if I tell you, you will not believe. After a a night of, of beatings, and abuse of sleeplessness without uh, any nourishment. He is then brought to trial. The Sanhedrin bring him into their court and the, the, the high priests and the lawyers gather against him and they demand explicitly that he tell them whether he's the Messiah. And what does Jesus say here? He says, if I tell you, you will not believe. I want you to think about that for a moment. The problem here is not for a want of evidence. Jesus is making it clear. If he told the truth, they wouldn't believe. The problem was their unbelieving, unregenerate heart. And I think we need to remember this as we seek to, as Christians, in a winsome way, do apologetics. We are not lacking in evidence. That is not what is keeping people from Christ. We're up against unbelief, a lack of faith in him. Oftentimes, they're not even looking for evidence. And if you put evidence before them, it just slides off the table as though the the table is at an angle. Like you're in the Navy, you know, put it down and it will catch it. Just slides right off. Because they're not really interested in the truth. They're actually against the truth. They're biased against the truth. Only God's Holy Spirit can change a man or a woman's inner disposition to cause them to want the truth. By nature, we don't want the truth. We suppress the truth in unrighteousness, Paul says in Romans chapter 1. And so Jesus says to them, if I tell you, you won't believe. And so he doesn't tell them. And we're told in other Gospels that he is silent. Now, why then does Jesus here answer Eventually here. He says, if you notice, he says in verse 70, when they said, are you the son of God? Then he said, yes, I am. Now, what what made the difference? Luke here doesn't really tell us uh, specifically, but some of the other gospel writers do give us that information. And it was this. They put Jesus under an oath. And the Old Testament law said that if the court bound you with an oath, You had an obligation to speak the truth. That was the difference. And Jesus was simply fulfilling the judicial law of the Old Testament. The high priest, he wouldn't tell uh, of his own accord as a judgment against them, as if his entire last three years wasn't sufficient to bring them to faith. (laughs) And so they say, well, we're going to put you under an oath. And now you'll have to tell us. And so he says, yes, he's the son of God. And then they say, you have heard what further testimony do we need? Here's the irony. Jesus is telling the truth about who he is, the son of God who became a man and died for us. And they judge him to be a blasphemer. They're very they're guilty of the very thing they're accusing Jesus of. As we come to the table. 
We come and we look at the, the sufferings of Christ in the broken bread and in the cup. Jesus was falsely accused. He was condemned. He was beaten. He was maliciously tried and found guilty of something that was true. He is the son of God. Very God of very God, as we said in the Nicene Creed. Let's remember, congregation, the sufferings of Jesus today as we come to this table. The broken bread and the cup of wine, these are symbols of Jesus' sufferings and humiliation for you. Christ has offered himself to us. And if you have never come to Jesus Christ, I in Jesus' name offer him freely to you today. That you take this suffering servant as your savior For this was the plan of God, that Jesus should suffer for our sins, that he should be tried and condemned in the place of sinners so that your sin and my sin would be placed on his innocent head and that he should die for those sins and pay the equivalent of eternal judgment for those sins and be raised from the dead on the third day. That this promise be given to us, that whosoever believeth on him should not perish, but have everlasting life, that those who sincerely call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved. That he who raised Christ from the dead shall dwell also within you when you look to him by faith. Have you looked personally to Jesus yet as your own personal Lord and Savior? Do you own him publicly? Let's pray together. Father.